everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Steve Munkel, who is the Executive Director for California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. Welcome again, Steve. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. Um, so. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the police shootings and the uh, uh, footage, uh, which is becoming a big issue again. And uh, I happened to note to one of my assistants because uh, I just sent out like four press releases on police shootings. So it seems like this is like, uh, unfortunately, we're back in that period of time again. Um, but California was supposed to have dealt with this problem, and it seems like um, the police have found a way around it. Um, are, are you able to give us some background as to what's going on here? Sure. Um, let me start first with, with just a brief acknowledgement of the fact that although throughout the United States during the 40 or 50 years of the quote-unquote war on crime and the trend toward mass incarceration and lock everybody up. Um, during all that time, California and other states were influenced by law enforcement to really, really lock down the access to, to records of individual law enforcement officers who may have been involved in misconduct or had been accused of misconduct. And of all the states that had restrictions in trying to get information about police behavior, California had the most restrictive. Um, and it, it's been from the criminal defense side where I've always worked, it, it's been a challenge since my first day at work in 1978 to try and figure out how to get the word on officers that you think are doing bad things and did bad things to your client, obviously, is the initiating problem. So in the last roughly 10 years, as the California legislature has been dominated by the Democratic Party and the narrative has gradually swung from we should lock everybody up to, wait a minute, there's a lot of harm that is done by locking everybody up. We should look at other ways of doing things um, and maybe look at evidence-based ways of doing things where the outcomes are likely to be good. Um, and so just in the last two or three years, that trend has led to efforts to open up, to some extent, the 
um, police records and and records about police conduct and misconduct. Um, so the specific thing that you contacted me about was the amendments made, I think, in 2018 or maybe 19 um, to Government Code Section 6254, Subdivision F. And 6254 generally is the statute which outlines the exemptions from the Public Records Act. California on its face has a very broad Public Records Act, which says basically everything that every record the government makes or keeps is public and should be accessible to the public. But there's this statute which has exemptions and lots of the exemptions are not non-controversial, but one of them is that all law enforcement investigations are exempt from the Public Records Act and public disclosure. So the, the specific thing we're talking about, the access to police videos, especially of incidents where there's a shooting by the police and somebody's injured or killed, um, those things were never required to be released under California law. But now this, this amendment to 6254F has said, when you have a recording, which would be audio or video, um, of a, of a serious incident, a critical incident where there's a shooting and somebody's injured or killed, then you must release that recording to the public within 45 days. And then there's a couple of exceptions that would allow them to extend that 45 days. But, it, but it's clearly saying the legislature wants law enforcement to show the public what happened where they have recordings of these very serious incidents. And then, uh, of course, what happens when law enforcement realizes that under the force of law, they have to disclose some of this stuff is they try to manipulate what they disclose in their favor. So rather than releasing raw body cam footage and letting the media and the public sort through it and figure out what they make of it, they edit it and they blur backgrounds and they highlight things and they leave out parts. And, and that doesn't even, that's not even talking about the part while the recording is being made when officers turn their equipment off in, in violation of departmental rules or turn off the audio or the other things that are done as game, gamesmanship on the street. Uh, but even once, once you've got that recording, when law enforcement realizes they need to release it, um, of course, they wanted to create the best possible impression about the way law enforcement handled the situation, and they do. Yeah, so that seems like it shouldn't be legal. So why are they able to get away with it? Well, there's a couple different answers to that. One is it's difficult, time-consuming, and expensive to try to enforce a legal standard like this or legal provision like this i mean the way it would come up most likely unless there was a nonprofit criminal justice organization with a bunch of money to spend that decided to go after this policy like that group down in texas went after the abortion medication uh you know approval of the fda that group had money and time and an interest and they went after that 
outside the the context of an individual case. But normally, the way something like this would come up to challenge the editing that's being done or the <laughs> misrepresentations that might be included in releasing police information is from an individual case. And the defense attorney isn't paid to, to go sue the government about their policy and whether whether the police department is in compliance or not in compliance. What's really the motivation for the defender is, can I get the full copy of it? Um, and can I go to the judge and say, judge, they've released this edited thing and they gave me a copy of that, but I really need to see the whole thing. My expert and I have to go through it and see the raw footage. So let, judge, give me an order and make them give it to me. Well, it's much easier to have that conversation with the judge and much easier to get that order now than it was before this amendment. But um, that doesn't mean that the defense or the prosecution would ever release what, what the defense attorney received. And to some extent, in, and in many cases, the defense would have its own desire to keep some of this out of the public media storm anyway, um, because the more public information gets thrown out about a case, the, the more difficult it gets to pick an unbiased jury if you get to a jury trial, which obviously doesn't happen in every case, but where there's been a shooting and a death or serious injury, the trial's more likely than in a you know, DUI or, or less serious matter. So, I mean, it seems like there are two separate issues here. So, so obviously, you know, you're looking at the world at least partially through through the lens of criminal defense, and I understand you probably have a broader view than just that. But uh, in your professional view, um, so I, I mean, from that perspective, is this law working? And then, and then. I'm going to ask you about the public perspective after you answer the first part. Well, the, the fact that you have seen enough videos released that you know you have complaints about what they're doing with them shows that the law is working. Okay, we're getting a whole lot more released a whole lot sooner than we did before. And that's a good thing. Right. And then from the public's perspective, though, you know, the, the idea is, you know, uh, you're expecting that, okay, police incident happens, you know, Fox 40 gets a hold of it, they show uh, clips from it that you're getting, you know, a relatively reasonable and accurate depiction of what happened. Well, and that's, that's part of where, to the extent there's a distortion in what's presented, that exacerbates the concern about poisoning the well of the jury basically and and building public opinion based on a misrepresentation or distorted uh, picture of the facts and of course when we see a video our brain and our experience tells us oh this is what happened and that's not always the case so they're actually hiring it sounds like you know professional uh, video editors to to actually go in and comb through these things. Well, and that's frankly that's better than having uh, 
an officer trained to do it. And frankly, there are a whole lot of LAPD in particular people in their tech divisions that could do this sort of stuff. But uh, hiring an outside expert to do the to do the editing before it's released, um, if the if that expert is responsible, they are going to have less bias in the editing they're doing than the typical officer. And I'm not necessarily talking about conscious bias. That's obviously a problem. But it's the implied or unconscious bias that's really a difficulty here. If you believe in law enforcement and the, and law enforcement asks you to edit something where their behavior is questionable, you may not even be aware of the way that your mind is distorting your own view of what you see on a video. And then you apply that distortion in the way you prepare it for public release. So um, shifting gears slightly, I mean, from your perspective, are the videos actually getting out to the public in general? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I haven't been exposed to any uh, report on how many incidents there have been and how many videos have been released in a timely way. Um, and frankly, I don't know if anyone is is trying uh, trying to accumulate that data. In, in California, the most likely group to be putting some resources into that would be the ACLU, but there are a couple of other nonprofit criminal justice organizations that if they had the resources would would want to know that information too. But I, I haven't seen anything on that, so just don't know. I do remember that when um, there have been several laws that have actually loosened up uh, some of these regulations, and one one dealt with video, but uh, one also dealt with uh, police reports and other stuff. And so I remember when when that became active, you know, all these organizations, including ours, uh, you know, filed records requests to see what we could get. Um, but I don't know, you know, I haven't followed up to see if uh, that's continued uh, regularly. My impression is that there are still a number of media organizations that are regularly putting in public records acts for police misconduct issues, which would have previously been exempt from public disclosure, but now can be accessed through the public records act. Um, and I haven't had any direct experience with the requests that have been done under that expansion of the law, but uh, my experience with law enforcement generally is that, that they try to avoid releasing everything and, and they're not always afraid to lie about what they've got or don't have. But but real, realistically, that's an exception to a general rule that they usually will follow the law. Yes, well, one of the ones that we requested, I don't remember when this was, it must have been 2018 or something like that. Um, but uh, basically, the police department said, oh, sorry, we threw everything away. When did they throw it away? Oh, right before the law became active. Well, then that would be a good example of corruption, public corruption, not personal corruption. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, the other interesting thing is that, um, and I forget 
the statute, but now the attorney general's office uh, is, I guess, required to review all officer-involved shootings. Um, and so um, there was one report from November from uh, CalMatters um, that said that they had looked at 36 uh, fatal shooting cases since July of 2021, but only three uh, have they provided any kind of uh, records for. Uh, so um, CACJ supported and, and, and helped to get that amendment passed that, that requires the attorney general to take a look at um, fatal police shootings, basically. Um, we wanted a stronger law, but you know, in the legislative process, there's often compromises that you have to tone something down to get it through. Um, so um, again, I haven't seen a report on overall how that uh, process is going, but I know that the attorney general did establish a unit to deal with those situations. And the whole point was to have somebody outside the local department and the local politicians um, reviewing the conduct of those officers. Because we, we have seen from all over the country and hundreds of cases now, there's, there, there's enough public information to, out there to know that a police department does not honestly investigate its own employees. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, what happens with these um, laws is not only do they get watered down through the legislative process, but there's kind of this second bite of the apple where they're supposed to be funded to a certain level and then they end up uh, cutting back on the funding. And so in this case, I believe um, off the top of my head that uh, they've only, uh, the AG's office has only gotten half the funding of what they were expecting to get. So I think it was supposed to be, I want to say like 500 million and they got like half of that, uh, which sounds like a lot of money until you uh, start breaking down what, what that actually buys. Yeah, the full funding is always a problem. And, uh, and also the follow through is always a concern. And then the impact, you know, or another area where there can be Mission creep, I guess, is one phrase for it. Um, but, uh, you know, at least in this period in California, there's still uh, enthusiasm in the legislature for trying to get these reforms to work properly. On the other hand, there is a significant minority in the legislature that wants to go back to the old lock them up mentality there every year there are multiple bills to roll back prop 47 and take what are now misdemeanors and make them back into felonies and all that sort of stuff so it's not like there's ever an end point to this process it's like the tide rolling in and rolling out again yeah and i think last year when we talked uh that was kind of the basis for our conversation how are things going uh in, in that respect have uh have things kind of calmed down or not? You mean in the legislature? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hard to say this year yet exactly how it's going because we're still in the 
first phase of committee reviews in both the Assembly and the Senate, where uh, bills are going through the Public Safety Committee in each house. Um, most of our bills that we're supporting or, or drafted and support um, have gotten through their first step of committees, but a number of bills that we oppose um, have also gotten through. A lot of them, a lot of the bills we oppose have gotten killed, but um, by not getting through a committee. But uh, so there are still some moving forward. So it's a mixed bag, um, and you know we want legislators to be looking at each issue individually even though it is all tied together by an underlying philosophy or foundation. But um, we've, got, we've got some bills from conservative legislatures that are maybe better than they are bad or vice versa, some, some that are maybe worse than they are good. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering, you know, what, what your legislative priorities are at this point. Well, there's two uh, that I think are the top priorities for CACJ this year. One of them is um, AB 61, um, which um, would re restore the right to uh, discovery of police reports and, and case information to the defense prior to a preliminary hearing in a felony case. Um, this was the law prior to 1991 when Proposition 115 uh, eliminated it. And it, it can be difficult, depending on the attitudes of individual DAs or DA offices, it can be very difficult for the defense to get a full set of reports and other information prior to the probable cause hearing, which is the way that felony cases are moved on towards trial. And for, for the defense not to know all the facts, when you go to a critical stage like that with witness testimony and a judge deciding whether the evidence is sufficient, that's just not fair. It's just wrong. So that's a top priority for us. And then another is to finally harmonize California procedure for dealing with recent arrestees and the time it takes to get them into their first court appearance where they might be arraigned and where they can talk about bail or being released. And uh, there's a case from the United States Supreme Court nearly 40 years ago now, I think, uh, Riverside versus McLaughlin, that said, you have to get that felony case reviewed by a judge within 48 hours to determine if there's probable cause. And, and by the way, you also ought to get them into court within 48 hours without any exceptions for weekends or holidays or that sort of thing. And California has never changed its statutes to implement those rules. So the constitution requires it, but it's not in the California code. And as a result, there are places where um, things go on a lot longer than they're supposed to under the constitution. And, um, and so we have, there's a bill this year, don't remember the number off the top of my head, but there's a bill this year that would require that the first court appearance for someone arrested take place within 48 hours without exceptions for Sundays or holidays. What One thing that will mean is that courts will have to do some work on the weekend. But um, 
But that's frankly, in my view, better than having someone who should be released while pending their charges um, or where the evidence isn't really even sufficient to hold them at that stage of the case. Uh, they shouldn't be sitting around three to five to eight days waiting to get to a judge for that to happen. That's where that's where people lose jobs, families break up, all kinds of bad things happen. So California will be going back to the days of night court and weekend courts. Could well be. And of course, one challenge for getting that bill through is that we anticipate that the judicial conference will probably uh, oppose it strenuously on the basis of cost. Right. I figured that would be the case. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. I thought where you were going to go was to kind of tighten up um, some of the guidelines as to speedy trial because they've had all those problems in San Francisco and elsewhere where <laughs> people have been languishing in custody for uh, in some cases over a year uh, without uh, without it going to trial. And so uh, there's all this pressure on them to plead out because they can't get a hearing. Yes. Um, and that's another area where there, there, there are statutes and cases interpreting the constitutional requirements that should be very helpful to the defendants. But many of the trial court judges um seem comfortable with reinterpreting precedent and the language in the statutes to um avoid the necessity for dismissing a case because it's been held too long and that sort of thing but but there are standards and the the appellate process will hopefully eventually sort that out but but that process always takes multiple years before the sorting is complete. Now it's interesting uh, what you talked about. It was AB 61, is it? Um, mm, I think so. With, with the prelims, because you know that's an issue that we always see is that until a preliminary hearing comes on, uh, you know, even the defense really doesn't know. Okay, how strong is this case? And yet you often see these cases and the pressure to plead out before uh, before even goes to a prelim. And so, um, you know, you're basically asking somebody to take a guess without even knowing how strong the case is. Yeah, the, the combination of circumstances that you're bringing up um, have all contributed to what I call the vanishing right to trial. Um, and uh, CHJ is currently uh, collaborating with the National Association uh, to gather data and eventually produce a report. Uh, we call that the trial penalty project, where people today uh, have a, face a situation when they have a, a charge pending where um, they may feel the risk of going to trial and being convicted and sentenced is too great to, pr to protest their innocence and to go to trial and say, I didn't do it. Um, and that's where there might be a plea offer on the table for six years. But if you go to trial, there's a mandatory minimum of 20 if you lose. Well, so even an innocent person might decide that it's 
better to take the six-year deal than run the risk of 20 years. And that happens. It's a, it's a real thing. And not just with cases with that, that level of penalty, but in all the ways that you're touching on, it's part of the day-to-day -day operation. When I started practicing in the late 70s, um, about 10% uh, of misdemeanor cases would go to trial and something like seven, five to 7% of felonies. And it's less than half that now that go to trial, which, which means there aren't enough trials to really teach the district attorney when they're overreaching and when the community doesn't agree with their policies and practices for charging excessively. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And, um, you know, the trial penalty is a real problem. I know the National uh, Registry of Exonerations has found that nearly one in every five of the cases where somebody's been exonerated, uh, they pled guilty uh, to the charges. So, you know, the um, this is a significant problem. Yes. Um, so in closing, I want to go back uh, to the issue of police shootings. What is CACJ's uh, position on kind of the ideal there uh, with regard to video footage and, and release? Well, CAC doesn't have an official position, but based on my experience and my involvement in the legislative committee and CACJ, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, we would support an amendment to this requirement for disclosure that required it, the raw footage be released in some fashion as part of any disclosure. Yeah, and I think from the public's perspective as well, that that's the ideal is give us the raw footage, let us decide, and then, you know, the law enforcement agency or whoever is regulating over this, whether it's the AG or a special prosecutor or what, can make the decision as to criminal liability. But uh, if if you're cutting this stuff, it's really concerning. Yeah, the truth the truth is important, and and the truth bent a little bit is a real problem. Yeah, it's it's a real problem, really, because we don't know to what extent it's been bent. So we don't know what we don't know. Um, you know, it's almost worse than not knowing anything, the possibility that what you know is fabricated. Yes. All right, well, Steve, thanks for coming on and uh, sharing uh, your thoughts with us this week. My pleasure and thanks for having me. Steve Munkel from the California Association of Criminal Justice has been on Everyday Injustice, and we've been talking about police video and, and the fact that it's come out now that police video has been edited, uh, and, and in some cases, the public's unaware of this, uh, which is a real problem. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com 
That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.